Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. And welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 13, The Zapruder, Part 5. In this episode, we continue the discussion around the Zapruder film and the journey it took once it was in the hands of life. We'll cover the events that affected the film up to about 1975. Then stay tuned for the last episode in the Zapruder series, episode 14, which will cover what happened to the film in the years after life relinquished its ownership. So without further ado, let's listen to episode 13. A gentleman just walked in our studio that I am meeting for the first time as well as you. This is WFA-TV in Dallas, Texas. May I have your name, please, sir? My name is Abraham Zapruder. Mr. Zapruder? Zapruder, yes, sir. Zapruder. And would you tell us your story, please, sir? I got out in, uh, about a half hour earlier and get this a good spot to shoot some pictures. And I found a spot, one of these uh, concrete blocks that I have down near that park near the underpass. And I got on top there, there was another girl from my office, she was right behind me. And as I was shooting, as the president was coming down from Houston Street making his turn, it was about halfway down there, I had a shot. And he slumped to the side, like this. Then I had another shot or two, I couldn't say it was one or two. And I saw his head practically open up, all blood and everything, and I kept on shooting. That's about all. I'm just sick again. I think that pretty well expresses the entire yeah. feelings of the whole world. Terrible. You have the film in your camera. We'll try yes, to get, I brought it on the studio. Now. We'll try to get that processed and have it as soon as possible. Right now, we have videotape. By the end of February 1964, the Warren Commission was already organized and up and running and addressing key matters around the investigation. They knew that both the Secret Service and FBI had a copy of the Zapruder film. Nevertheless, they wanted to see the original of the Zapruder film. It was obviously no secret that life had access to it, and once they understood that life was in physical possession of it, they arranged for officials from life to come to Washington and preview the original. On February 25, 1964, that is exactly what they did. Lindell Shanefelt directed Life employee Herbert Orst to make his way to Washington on that day. He kept tight physical control of the film as he traveled from Chicago to Washington. The commission members saw the film that day, and Arlen Specter was the only attorney on the commission staff that was present. What was apparent to everyone in the room was the stunning clarity of the original and how much better it was than the copy that the Secret Service and the FBI had in their possession already. The Commission knew that it needed high-quality copies of the original to complete its own work, and so it asked Life to supply high-quality 35mm color prints of each frame requested. Curiously, 
they didn't request prints of each frame in the entire film. Rather, they requested reproductions only from prints of frames 171 to 207 and then frames 212 through 343. These eventually became known as Warren Commission Exhibit 885. You'll see it in the vernacular as capital C, capital E, 885. Life may have entirely recouped its investment in the film by the incremental circulation that happened for that edition of the magazine on the 29th. The exact total economics and accounting for the profits over the years that were split between Life and Zapruder have never been fully revealed. Nevertheless, the film itself now began a period of quarantine, so to speak, and it was generally held in tight control by Life over the course of the next 11 years. But Life couldn't control the rest of the events that were happening around the assassination review, and there were many of them over the next few years. Topping the list was all of the controversy and criticism that began to grow as the Warren Commission report was finally issued in September 1964. One of the classic early books on the assassination was put together by Josiah Thompson. It's a book I have mentioned earlier, and it's entitled Six Seconds in Dallas. Thompson would later engage with life in a contract that allowed him to review the original film as part of the book he was writing. There were a few other researchers that were allowed access in that time frame as well to see the original, including Sylvia Maurer, another serious researcher on the subject. Those of you who are serious readers of the assassination literature need to read her seminal book, also written during that time frame. While it was helpful to have more respected members of the research community view the original film, it also contributed to the dialogue around growing concerns that the film was critical to analyzing what really happened that day in Dallas, and the fact that it was not widely available for review was severely hampering those efforts. Without getting into too many details, Thompson's relationship with life soured before the project was over. Although I will tell an interesting story about an event that was alleged to have happened one night while Thompson was reviewing 35mm prints of the Zapruder film. Life had modest physical controls over the film and maintained it at the offices in Chicago. Thompson's access to it was limited, and he was only allowed to see it at Life's offices, and most of the time he was under strict supervision while he was reviewing the film. But one moment, in a moment of more lax security, or maybe because Thompson had gotten to know the individuals a bit at Life, for whatever reason, he was left alone for a short while. He was reviewing materials by himself. He more than took advantage of it. When some of the life officials returned, he was caught photographing some of the high-resolution 35-millimeter color prints. Surprisingly, life didn't take any particular action at this moment, but it wasn't long thereafter that Thompson's relationship with life began to come to a close. When his book, Six Seconds in Dallas, was published, it included charcoal images of frames 207 through 212, these frames, as you know from my earlier discussion, were not previously published due to the damage that had happened during Life's initial handling of the film. Life deemed this to be a copyright issue, and it turned out to be the first and probably most serious copyright litigation that Life engaged in over the course of its ownership of the film. Josiah Thompson's book was a success, 
and it served to stir the public up even more about the lack of answers around the assassination and the strange mysteries, including this issue of missing frames that were now being discussed related to the Zapruder film. Life most certainly had the film under lock and key, but interestingly enough, it was far from the kind of security procedures that might have been deployed at, say, even a highly secure safe deposit box at one of the best Chicago banks. Instead, the film was actually kept in the offices in a bottom desk drawer of one of the executives in charge of overseeing the film. And almost like a scene out of the series Mad Men, for those of you who have seen that series, Picture that we are all experiencing a moment with Don Draper in his cushy Madison Avenue office entertaining clients. Draper makes a comment that they have the Zapruder film, and the client asks whether he might be able to see it. Privately, of course. In real life, senior executives or others of a VP nature using their privilege would then get a look at this film. It resulted in copies being requested and made from time to time in order to accommodate these private showings. Over time, this resulted in a small number of bootleg copies that were made, and to the chagrin of many officials at Life, a number of them made their way out of that building in Chicago and never came back. Most of these copies that made their way out of the Life building were of lesser quality, But nevertheless, they soon began circulating in various places. Many of them showed up with professors on college campuses, another highly interested venue on the topic of the assassination. But still, at this moment, the controversy surrounding lack of accessibility to the film had not yet gained enough momentum in mainstream America to call for the large-scale release of the film. So, despite the teaser that these bootleg copies became, the original film itself remained locked in the desk drawer of that life executive. But it was 1967, and the U.S. was engaged in the Vietnam War, and we all know it was a rapidly changing time in America. With conspiracy theorists getting more traction and the lack of evidence feeding into their suspicions and concerns, the missing frames and the story now made their way back into the limelight with the Thompson book, and they began to germinate even more assassination lore. The circumstance became hot enough that Life issued a press release in January 1967, indicating that no frames were missing and that they had possession of all the frames. That might have been literally true, but that didn't seem to be totally true given the damage to the frames and the omission then from the film. But then, somehow skillfully, they managed to recover from what appeared to be a PR blunder. Meanwhile, on another front, there was a broader movement afoot that was coming into play around all of the evidence in the case. As I mentioned to you earlier, Texas had no laws related to the confiscation of evidence in a criminal case. In some ways, the issues surrounding securing the evidence really were kind of like the Wild West. No doubt there was a need to get all of it in one place, secured and inventoried in a way that it could be used for the further analysis and research of the assassination topic. A particularly interesting development occurred that was the catalyst for what would come next. A wealthy oil man named John King from Colorado contracted with Marina Oswald. 
he entered into a contingent contract to purchase her husband's Maliker Carcano rifle, the one that Lee Harvey Oswald purportedly used in the assassination, and also to purchase his pistol as well, that is, the handgun used to kill Officer Tippett. He advanced money to Marina. I believe the amount was $10,000, and he made the balance of the payments contingent upon the government returning those pieces of evidence to Marina, and then Marina finally delivering those to Mr. King. Ultimately, the government did not return these pieces of evidence, and this failure to be able to complete the contract terms later resulted in litigation we will get into in a minute. In a bigger way, what it did do is put front and center this issue around evidence and when it could be confiscated by the state and when it should be returned and should there be compensation for evidence that is confiscated. The idea of anyone trading in these items is, for most of us, abhorrent. To some, though, these pieces of evidence were seen as being similar to finding an earlier draft of, uh, say, the Declaration of Independence, perhaps hidden somewhere in an old desk that had been removed from Freedom Hall. Again, up until that time in history, these items were mostly just considered a piece of private property. When the government did not return the guns to Marina and she was unable to deliver them to King, well then, King took the matter to the court and the case made its way in front of District Court Judge William J. Doyles. And what he said next is interesting. And I think it pretty well sums up the core issues around the ownership and possession of the evidence. Here is what he said. Under the peculiar facts of this case, one would suppose that under some principle of common law, or at least natural law, or natural justice, weapons used in the commission of a crime of this magnitude would be subject to forfeiture by the proper authorities, and certainly the property of this character would not be subject to commercial traffic. It is, therefore, somewhat astonishing to discover that there is not any such principle that forfeiture is a matter of statutory regulation. Simply put, the judge himself was astonished that there were no laws around the whole circumstance that would control whether the government had the right to take and retain the evidence. All the controversy spurred on by the results of this case was enough for the federal government to take action. They passed legislation known as the Act of November 2, 1965, an act providing for the acquisition and preservation of and by the United States of certain items of evidence pertaining to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It became Public Law 89-318. The Attorney General of the United States would determine what pieces of evidence would be purchased and become property of the United States. Considering the vast amount of evidence that the Warren Commission had looked at, it was clear that not all items were in need of purchase and permanent retention. It took some time for the Attorney General's office to come up with a list, but almost a year later, in October 1966, they would publish that list in the Federal Register. The federal government was now authorized to seize the individual items on the list, and then owners of those materials had the right to file, within a one-year period, a claim filed in the Federal Court of Claims or in a district court for compensation associated with the seizure. Only items that were specifically enumerated in the subsequent Federal Register were to be subject to this law 
And curiously, or perhaps not so curiously, the Zapruder film was absent from the list of published items. The final list was published in the November 1, 1996 Federal Register. Life had escaped the grasp of this new federal law and retained ownership of the film. It was a move that would again keep the movie under lock and key for many years to come. On November 1, 1966, Public Law 89-318 came into full swing as the government was set to purchase and retain other critical pieces of evidence. Just when it seemed like things were going to settle down for the folks at Life, more drama was headed their way. In 1967, Jim Garrison's investigation of the assassination began to heat up in New Orleans. The original of the film got its first and only subpoena. It was ordered to appear in the courtroom in New Orleans for the Clay Shaw trial. More on this whole topic when we cover the Garrison investigation in another episode. Sadly, no other trial was ever held related to the assassination. So this critical piece of evidence has never been asked to stand up figuratively and take the oath and tell the truth again in a court of law. In some ways, things really did settle down for the film for the next few years as conspiracy theorists paused on these issues and began to focus on other parts of the investigation that were beginning to become apparently more important in solving this ever-expanding mushroom cloud of possibilities related to the whodunit and the how and the why. American life and American thought in those years during the 60s was undergoing considerable change. That we now know. The next few years of peaceful bliss around the film would then give way to another stunning turn of events. In 1969, a young man named Robert Groden, who is an optical technician from New Jersey, acquired possession of a better copy of the Zapruder film. He had already begun to make it his life's crowning work, and over the next four years, using his technical expertise gained by being in the optics industry, he took that copy of the film and evolved it into what was perhaps the greatest rendering yet of the Zapruder film. He used his technical expertise to do things like stabilize a number of the film frames that did indeed have some shake and to enhance the clarity of the film. Groden completed his work painstakingly and four years after he began, he was ready to show it to someone. The year was 1973, and the world was coming up on the 10th anniversary of the assassination. Interest was again growing around the entire topic of who really killed JFK. At first, Groden showed it to a few friends, and the response was immediate. The clarity of the film was absolutely stunning. No one outside of a handful of people in America had, up to that point, seen a version of the Zapruder film like the one that Groden now had in his possession. It was an exciting and an excitable moment. Groden was encouraged to do more and arranged to have a showing on the Georgetown campus in Washington, D.C. at an annual meeting of the CTIA group. Given that his copy of the film was essentially and originally of a bootleg nature, Groden was careful in how they would be introducing the film in a public way. 
in somewhat of an ironic twist, he picked what they thought was an underground newspaper with the name Quicksilver Times to advertise the showing and let folks know that it was going to take place at Georgetown University. Little did Grodin know that the paper was, in later years, disclosed to be completely owned and operated by the Central Intelligence Agency. Evidently, the advertisement got the agency's attention, and in later years, it was disclosed that both the CIA and the FBI sent representatives to the showing at Georgetown. The gathering had initially been part of a group known as the Committee to Investigate the Assassination, or CTIA. In another dramatic event at the conference in Georgetown where the film was shown, an attendee attempted to snatch and run away with Grodin's briefcase, thinking the film copy was in it. Ultimately, no film was snatched, but this made for good suspense and drama in the middle of the conference. Some of you might recognize the name Dick Gregory. He was an African-American comedian that was quite involved at the national level he and his wife, along with Harold Weisberg, who was one of the more respectable and aggressive JFK assassination researchers of the 60s, got wind of Grodin's enhanced copy of the Zapruder film. In sort of an odd rendezvous, a group gathered at a hotel room, including Weisberg and Dick Gregory and his wife, along with Grodin and his wife. They discussed at length the film. Gregory was particularly interested in all the wild rumors that had been floating around about potential CIA involvement in all sorts of domestic affairs and things that were not authorized to be engaged in, including even rumors about their potential involvement in the JFK assassination. After viewing the film, Gregory and those at the meeting were all convinced that others needed to see it. Gregory was scheduled to appear before a newly created group that was investigating the allegations related to the CIA. It was known as the Rockefeller Commission. Soon thereafter, it was arranged to have Grodin screen the film for Roger Olson, who was the Rockefeller Commission's general counsel. Also present that day was David Bellin, a prominent Warren Commission staff attorney. David Bellin was one of the three key supervising attorneys on the Warren Commission. Much of the narrative of the Warren Commission report was born of Bellin's pen. And in what was the beginning of the early stages of a lifelong institutional bias, on that day, Bellin would try to balance the defense of the work that he and his colleagues had done on the Warren Commission and yet still be open to additional investigation to address the controversies that had arisen. The mantra of almost every one of those Warren Commission attorneys would evolve into a simple narrative. And initially, it went something like this. We were right, period. It was in one variation of that theme or another to become the chant of all these high-powered men. Men who temporarily lent themselves to the government of the United States and the people of this country for the sake of a very, very noble cause. What happened to them is no different than what happens to other men and women that undertake complex and dangerous endeavors and stake their reputation and integrity on what they are doing. Yes, the conclusions were institutionally biased from the very beginning, and that part of it was not their doing. That came from another source within the government. Intelligent men don't like to admit that they've been used as operatives in any way or at least tools in someone else's play at least not knowingly used. 
Over the course of their lives, these men weren't going to admit anything to that effect either. They were some of the smartest attorneys in the nation that you could have put on the trail of this mystery. But the hand they were dealt was clearly being engineered in other ways. Howard Willens, another one of the supervising attorneys on the Warren Commission, is one of the most impressive attorneys I've ever seen speak. But it's apparent, years later, that he and others represent the epitome of institutional bias. Once the report was issued, they were not going back on it. That was it. Well, back to the Zapruder film itself. Events in the greater world kept on happening. What happened next for the film and for the ongoing assassination investigation was fortuitous. Geraldo Rivera, who, at least at that time, had more of a reputation as a serious reporter than he does today, he became aware of Grodin's copy of the film. And on March 6, 1975, the whole world got a chance to see it on his show, Good Night America. And there it was, in all of its stunning quality, on national television. Its disturbing and graphic images were made even more clear by the four years of copious work that Grodin had done on it. The national audience separately but collectively groaned as it made its debut showing on national television. The TV appearance only served to accelerate doubts about whether the Warren Commission report was telling the truth. The event fundamentally reinforced that a copy of this film should be more widely distributed to the American public. We really can thank Geraldo for that. It was an act of journalistic heroism of sorts, given all the institutional forces flowing in the other way at the time, and even in the news industry for sure. After the appearance of the film on Geraldo's show, about a month later, on April 15, 1975, Grogan showed his film one more time to Thomas N. Downing in a private showing in the congressman's office. Downing became convinced that there was more than one assassin. The frustration and anxiety over what the true answer was surrounding the JFK assassination had reached the tipping point, and now these and other forces were coming to bear on our government to do something more. The country had now gone through the assassination of JFK, the assassination of MLK, and then finally the assassination of RFK. And really, the list is longer than just that. On top of that, they had absorbed Vietnam and now had a president, President Nixon, who had resigned after having engineered a series of criminal acts and lied about them. It was a low point for the country, and the loss of innocence was everywhere in that moment, and it accompanied a loss in confidence of the current government. Finally, in 1976, the same year we celebrated our bicentennial as a nation, sadly, we also formed the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Still, it was an important step for the country to take. In many ways, the national showing of Grodin's film on the Geraldo Rivera show forced a real showdown related to the commercialization of the Zapruder film. You see, ABC had not obtained permission from life to air the film on Geraldo's show. That was a calculated decision on their part. Effectively, ABC had violated the copyright, and that was the opinion of many people at Life and certainly the opinion of the Zapruder family. 
it got even trickier for life from the standpoint that part of Zapruder's contract was that he was entitled to half the profits related to life's commercialization of the film. And there was also a provision that life had the obligation to enforce the copyright related to the film. Life was in a difficult place. Abraham Zapruder had died in 1970, but the heirs of his estate were pushing life on this issue. If life wouldn't take action against ABC, then life might be facing litigation from the Zapruder family, either asking them for specific performance around their obligation to enforce the copyright, or otherwise they might just seek damages related to lost profits in the event that life did not take action to protect the copyright. Life was not happy with ABC either, but on the other hand, ABC was a formidable litigant if life were to go after them. Granted, it appeared that ABC took a big chance in airing the film, but they had made their bed and now they were going to lie in it. They would defend their legal position if life came after them. The other unspoken aspect of all of this was more subtle. It was simple. Large news organizations aren't inclined to sue other large news organizations. It's just sort of the gentleman's agreement between all of them. In those days, it was just accepted as part of the decorum of the news business. Under pressure from Zapruder, life did shake ABC's tree a little bit and did threaten litigation against ABC, but ultimately decided that a legal battle with the network was not in anyone's best interests. Regardless, life was in a difficult place, and ultimately, these circumstances forced their hand on the whole subject of ownership of the Zapruder film. Eventually, life concluded that the only way out of this pickle was to abstain from going after ABC and then simply give the film back to the Zapruder estate for a nominal fee. Zapruder would ostensibly receive a highly valuable asset for a nominal amount, which would presumably settle the potential issue around lost profits and non-enforcement of copyright infringement and compensate and settle any remaining financial matters that may have been lingering with life up to that point. In reality, life had already acknowledged that owning the film was becoming incredibly controversial. The limitations in place partially attributable to the limitations that Zapruder had put on the original use of the film, were putting life squarely in a bad place from a PR perspective. Life had become interested in giving the film back to the government, and the interest in doing that had already put discussions in motion before things exploded after the Geraldo show. Quietly, negotiations were underway with officials at the National Archives. Ultimately, though, the government decided at that moment that they didn't want the film. A completely curious response by an arm of our government that has never been completely explained. Ultimately, life got their answer from the National Archives, and it was a clear no. That answer was a major factor influencing life to settle the whole matter by returning the film to the Zapruder estate. Life was ready to rid itself of the social liability associated with owning the film under the current ownership circumstances. As you might expect, it wasn't the end of the controversial story related to the Zapruder film. On April 9, 1975, 
life transferred ownership of the Zapruder film along with its original duplicate copy back to the Zapruder's three heirs, Abraham's widow and his son and his daughter. Thank you for listening to episode 13 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.